Amen. Great to see you today and good to gather together. We are beginning today a new study in the book of 2 Samuel. You might remember, well, we just finished Matthew last Sunday, but um, before Matthew, we studied 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel records the early days of the kingdom where Israel got their first king. Uh, Samuel anointed Saul as king. He was a really good, humble guy. And then he began to build. Then here David pops up and we see this young kid who killed a giant and he had such a great heart. He wrote tons of worship songs and yet he was a threat to Saul. And so during much of 1 Samuel, Saul was like trying to kill David. David was his son-in-law, was his, the best friend of his son. And yet, you know, Saul was just, you know, enraged at David over and over again. David had several chances to kill Saul. And he always said, I'm not killing him because I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. I won't do that. God put him in place. I'm not going to take him out. Um, even though David understood, someday you're going to be in that place. I imagine he felt he respected the position partly because he knew someday he would be in it. But he also was a guy who was a man after God's heart. David is an amazing guy. And so we're going through 1 Samuel. We saw a whole lot of great things about David. Well, now in 2 Samuel, we will see him ultimately become king and see how God continues to work in his life because the last chapter of 1 Samuel, we saw Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle. And now David will ultimately, here in the next couple chapters, become the king of Judah, and ultimately the king over all of Israel. So it's a really interesting study, especially because David's not just some Old Testament guy. David's the guy that is said to be a man after God's heart. So studying the life of David, for me, tells me more about connecting to God and tells me more about God than studying a lot of the other Old Testament lives even put together. But remember, in the last chapter of the Bible, the last chapter of Revelation, one of the last things Jesus does, he brags about being related to David. So when we look at his life, there's much that we can learn. And so I'm excited to be going through this. Now, again, at this point, Saul and Jonathan were just killed in battle. In fact, what it tells us in the final chapter of 1 Samuel is that, and it sounds like Saul, he knew he was wounded mortally, his kids were dead, his, all of his generals were defeated, and so he ended up killing himself, falling on his sword, taking his own life. At first he had asked his uh, armor bearer to kill him, and he goes, no way, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed, and the armor bearer kills himself instead. So then Saul fell on a sword and died. Now we get a little different version of it from a guy who was apparently there, uh, an Amalekite, in 2 Samuel chapter 1. And I honestly don't know to this day, is this guy making up part of this story? And did he come across Saul's dead body? Or did he, in fact, help with an assisted suicide? It's not clear. It just tells a story as to what they said. But it's a rough place to start a book. It's a rough place to go, okay, here we are. This day of tragedy, this day of sadness, this day of mourning, 
But that's where it starts. And so let's pick up here, 2 Samuel chapter 1. It says, It came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days by Ziklag. So let me hit freeze right there. David had, it had been chased and tried to be killed by Saul. He spared Saul's life several times when he could have killed him. Then David's like, I just need a job. So he was actually working for the Philistines because David had an amazing gift at killing people. And so, you know, he's leading the Philistines, but then they're going to war against Israel. And some of the Philistine leaders are like, we can't trust that guy. Remember back in the day when he worked for Saul, when they even said Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. He actually killed our hero, Goliath. No way. He can't work for us. So David and his men went back to the town where they lived. When they got there, they found out that the Amalekites had come in, destroyed their village while they're out fighting for the Philistines, and taken captive all of their wives and their children and all their stuff. So David and his men were there at their village just mourning and like, we've lost everything. And then God encouraged them and said, you can get it back. And so they found where the Amalekites were and they went and and wiped them out and got all their families back and all their stuff back and everything. So it's right on the heels of this. And remember who the Amalekites are. Way back in 1 Samuel, when Saul first became king, he had a battle. First, Saul made two really notable mistakes. One of them was to do a sacrifice when only the priest is supposed to do it. And the other one was, when he went against the Amalekites, he, you know, God told him, you better get them all. You need to wipe them out. And a part of the recognition was, otherwise they're going to come back to haunt you. He didn't obey God, and he didn't kill all the Amalekites. However you feel about that, he didn't do it. And so then the Amalekites come and take David's village and steal his wives and kids and everybody. And now an Amalekite comes into this story as well. So just to put that into context. So the third day, a man from Saul's camp, his clothes are all torn, dust on his head, came to David, fell on the ground, and prostrated himself. And David said to him, Where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. So David's like, How's the war gone? How did did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, The people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. His first reaction was, oh, come on. How do you know this? He said, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? What makes you say that? The young man said, well, I happened along by chance on Mount, Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, trying to take his own life. And indeed, the chariots and the horsemen followed hard after him. The enemy was coming. He didn't want the Philistines to kill him, and so he wanted to kill himself. And so when he looked behind himself and he saw me, he said, kid, come here. And he said, who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Now, 
I don't think if I'm talking to Saul and he's about ready to die and a lot of what he's going through is because he failed to kill all the Amalekites. I'm not sure I would say I'm an Amalekite, but he says that he did. And he said to me again, please stand over me and kill me for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So he says he fell on a sword, but it didn't completely work. He's suffering. And like, I don't want the Philistines to kill me. So I want an Amalekite to kill me. Sorry if that sounds a little fishy to me, but that's the story that the guy was giving him. So he said, what could I do? I stood over him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And look, I brought souvenirs, his crown, the bracelet off his arm. And here they are, I brought them to you. What do you think? He thought he was going to get some kind of a reward for killing Saul. Now, that's somewhat understandable if you know what everyone in those days knew, that Saul wanted David dead, that David had lived in the wilderness running from Saul for decades because of his bitterness. And so you'd think, logically, you'd get some sort of a reward for killing him, and now I have his stuff to prove it. Now, I think probably that the guy found Saul already dead, and so he took his stuff and went and pretended like he had done something really heroic. But if you want to believe in a Malachite, you can. But so he goes, David took hold of his own clothes and he just ripped them. And all the men that were with him, and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son. I understand him mourning Jonathan, but like, why is he mourning Saul? Why does this make him so in pain knowing what happened to Saul. You'd think he would at least go, well, you win some and you lose some, but it had to happen and I'm glad I didn't have to do it. But he's mourning. And mourning for all of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he's like innocently, I'm the son of an alien or an Amalekite. Remember the Amalekites? He's like, Do you understand that your people just raided my village, burned it down, and kidnapped all of our families, and took all of our stuff? You're one of those Amalekites? But this guy's just like, well, I'm an Amalekite. So David said to him, how was it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? The Lord's anointed should have destroyed your people a long time ago. But how dare you take his life into your hands? How could you do such a thing? Then David called one of the young guys and he said, you know, go execute him. Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. And David said to him as he was dying, your blood is on your own head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now we need to stop right here for a minute and I can give you my little talk on historical contextualization. If you're ever going to read history, you have to be able to put things into its historical context because what happened in those days made sense in those days. We cannot take, and you'll never, you'll never appreciate any history unless you understand that back then they did things differently. And so I look at it and like, Why did God tell him to kill all the Amalekites? And then you could go, 
Well, look, an Amalekite ended up coming back and killing Saul. Look, the village, the whole team of Amalekites had raided David's village, so they would have been better off dead. But what you have to understand historically is, this is the way it happened. If somebody fought in a battle with you, and if there were any survivors on your part, their job for the rest of their life was to go and destroy you. And so for an Amalekite who Saul had killed lots of Amalekites, now David had killed a bunch more, here's the way that they would just get even. Now, to our sensibilities, we would think, well, you could have had peace talks. Wasn't there a way that things could be worked out or whatever? But, you know, as with all history, it's different in different times. They, it's why they allowed slavery and we don't. It was the way things were. And you'll never understand history until you understand that most of history is that's the way they did it in those days. Now, we can be so arrogant as to think that we have it all right now. But, you know, back then, they were horrible. I heard Bill Maher this week talking about, you know, people that go, oh, I hate George Washington because he didn't have any gay friends. And he goes, look, if you were back then, you wouldn't have any gay friends either. If George Washington was here, he'd probably have gay friends. But if you went back there, you'd probably have slaves just like he did because that's the way it was in those days. And you can't understand history until you accept that aspect that, yep, in different times they saw things differently. I mean, there are going to be, if, if the Lord tarries in the future, there are going to be people that think that we were absolutely barbarians for some of the things that we did. I mean, for instance, 100 years from now, again, if we're still here, if we haven't destroyed ourselves or the Lord hasn't come back, um, people may think, Back then, and you know, in in after 2020, that with everything that they went through, they were still slaughtering animals and eating them. They were still taking eggs away from chickens and frying them in a pan. How in the world? And they may think that what we do, we take it for granted. I mean, you might think that eating a hamburger is great. Maybe a cow doesn't think that, you know, but. <laughs> That's the way time works. I'm thinking in the future, people are going to look back and go, I can't believe they were eating salads when they were surrounded by meat. But <laughs> however you want to do it, you know, that's the way history works. So let's not judge them for the way they dealt with the Amalekites. That's kind of the way it was in those days. And if you look back, that's always going to be the case. Now, I think personally that one of the, we look at the first century and go, it's shocking that if they got, had a girl and they didn't want a girl, they wanted a boy, they would just go put them in the woods and let the animals eat them. That seems just so repugnant to me. But I think 50 years from now, people are going to look back and go, you had 3D ultrasound technology where you saw those babies and you thought it was perfectly fine to eliminate them for the purpose of convenience? They're going to go, what were they thinking? But that's the way history is. We try to move forward. We try to have an honest perspective. But God records it the way that it happened. And the truth is, in those times, if they had shown more... I mean, Saul showed mercy to the Amalekites. Look what happened. One of them at least claims to have killed them. Others had ultimately had attacked David's whole um, family and his people. So that's just 
my little mini lecture on history and historical revisionism. As we go through 2 Samuel, you'll see many examples where we go, whoa, that's pretty intense. Yeah, it's pretty old, too. It's the way that things were done in those days, and that's the way you had to do it in order to survive. So anyhow, David lamented with his men, and but then he said, you know, after killing this guy, this Amalekite, who either made up a story that he wished he hadn't, or he actually had, maybe he thought he was doing Saul a favor, but David didn't think so. David lamented, and he lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son, and told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it's written in the book of Jasher. So David, at this point, writes a song that he says, I want you to teach this to people. I want everyone to have an opportunity to participate in understanding what we've lost and in being able to to participate in mourning somebody who God used, who was really anointed, and his loyal son, Jonathan. And so here's the song. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. That's going to come up three times in the psalm. The mighty have fallen. The beauty of Israel? Okay. Tell it not in Gath, where the Philistines lived, or in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. He's like, I don't even want the enemies of God's people to understand how devastated we are at what has happened. Oh, mountains of Gilboa, the place where he was killed. Let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for the shield of the mighty is cast away there. The shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. He goes, that place where he was killed, I pray that that place will be desolate forever. A place that we just look at it and go, oh, our loss. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return empty. It's like they killed a lot of people. They battled courageously. And they fell on the battleground as those who had, were mighty warriors. And they were mighty, but they fell. Saul and Jonathan, in verse 23, were beloved and pleasant in their lives. Hold on just a minute. Jonathan was beloved and pleasant. Saul Man, is that a stretch. Saul was the guy that, like, you came and played music for him, and he didn't like the song you were playing. He threw a sword at you and tried to kill you. In fact, over and over again, he chased you. You lived in caves in the wilderness because of this guy, and now you're saying he is pleasant? To who? He took your, your wife away from you. You were married to his daughter, and you end up losing your wife. He'll, he'll get her back later. Spoiler alert. But, you know, it's like, what's that about? Oh, he's pleasant. And in their death, they were not divided. And I appreciate that. He said, they died together. They were so different. Jonathan, David's best friend. Saul, David's greatest enemy. In the end, it'd be easy to be kind of bugged at Jonathan. Like, why in the world didn't you leave that nut and come and work with me? We're best friends. But blood is thicker than water, you know? He stayed with his dad, and he died because of it, and he did it honorably. 
They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. While he was running the government, you were clothed in scarlet with luxury, put ornaments of gold on your apparel. An awful lot of the greatness of our nation came because of his leadership. Again in verse 25, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan, slain in your high places. Now he gets personal because Jonathan was his best friend. I'm distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. He was his brother-in-law and he was also a brother to him. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. Now again, people see that and go, were these guys have something going on between them? Were, you know, they, people would even read this and suggest that there was some, um, you know, that they were gay. Or, but you have to understand in those days, the, saying more than the love of women wasn't saying very much. The women were kind of like property to him. Sorry, but it's historical contextualization. But he's saying, hey, I was closer to you than I am to my many wives. It's like bros before concubines, you know. It's kind of like, hey, we're, you know, we have a different kind of relationship. But it's, it's certainly nothing that is, would imply something weird. It's, you can read that into it, but you'd be wrong. So then, again, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. And after this, we'll see next week in chapter 2, David goes to the Lord and goes, what do we do now? I know I've been anointed. How do I move forward? And he did that well. Well, this chapter that's kind of unpleasant in a lot of ways, there's also some really important truths that we see in here. I mean, we see, you know, David, the man after God's heart, who is mourning the loss of a mentor slash enemy, ultimately, and a best friend and a brother at the soul level, the one who strengthened his hands in the Lord. They both died, and he's going through the grief process. He's actually mourning. And, you know, it isn't natural to... And there are people who act like, well, you know, if you know God... You should just get over it, move past it. No reason to mourn, no reason for grief. We know they're, with the, they're in a better place, they're with the Lord, and so shake it off. But remember, this is the example of the man called the man after God's heart. So I think when we connect with the heart of God, then we can learn something by the way that he processed this mourning process. You, many of you have probably read Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's book on death and dying, and she kind of established what she, what she called the five stages of grief. And later, really what, what Kubler-Ross was doing was talking about how to deal with your own death. When you're sick and you know you're dying, what do you go through in that process? But then people began to apply it to, here's how you deal with someone else who's dying as well. Here's the process that you can walk through. Now, she made a point to say it doesn't happen in a particular order. You don't have to, you know, experience it exactly this way or all of them. But there are certain things that go along with grief. And uh, what she has as, you know, the, the five stages of grief, she has, first of all, is denial. Now, nah, no way. This isn't happening. And you can certainly see that initially 
in David. But then you see anger as he realizes this has happened. Sorry, Amalekite, we're not going to talk about it. I'm mad, you're dead. And he went through that issue of anger. Now, anger is something that you either internalize it or you express it in some way. I'm not telling you to go kill an Amalekite this week. But what I am saying is anger is a normal part of the process of loss and mourning. So when you get from your denial to your anger, that's a step. The third step that she has is bargaining, where you're just trying to now wait. Do you, you really understand this? Maybe we need to investigate this further. Maybe there's something that we can do. So, and then ultimately, um, depression is the fourth step. And you can see him just weeping and crying and so upset. And then ultimately, acceptance is the fifth stage of grief, where you just go, okay, this is what it is, and I accept it and move on. Now, processing grief, the alternative to that is bottling it up. And I think as we look at the man after God's heart who's processing his grief, it's a lesson for us that when we experience loss, when someone that we know is dying or when someone that we know has died, we shouldn't just act like, eh, yep, oh, thank God that's over, and, you know, they're in heaven, and so I'm fine. That isn't, to, to do that is something that's really less than human. And if you try to stuff your grief, quite often it'll come out in other ways. Grief is the way, the process by which we come to terms with our loss. And so it's something that we need to give ourselves permission and give others permission to work their way through it. Nobody's telling, at this point, telling David, you know what? You're better off. We should be celebrating right now. What's wrong with you? No. They're looking to him as the leader. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to cry for a while. And then I'm going to go, no, I don't think this could be the case. And then I'm going to get angry. And they're like, okay, man, we're, we're with you. And they're following through all of these steps to depression and ultimately to acceptance. Okay, this is the way that it is. And so I love this chapter from a standpoint of you're seeing the picture of humanity dealing with legitimate loss of life, significant loss, and the man after God's heart showing us how he experienced exactly that. So if you've lost someone, maybe it's just you've lost a friend or you know, someone that you love has died, a family member, maybe, maybe you have, a marriage has ended or whatever, anything that you lose, maybe your lottery ticket didn't win, but any perceived loss that you have, um, like, like you're an Angel fan, for instance, <laughs> it's okay to mourn that. It's okay to go through that. And yeah, sometimes you're mad at the owner. Sometimes you're in denial. Sometimes you're looking up and technically if we win all the rest of our games and everybody else loses all the rest, that's a part of that bargaining. And then it hits you, depression. But then at some point you go, I'm moving forward. I'm going to accept this. But you are trying to be more than human if you try to short circuit the grief process. You have to let it happen. And if you don't, it comes out later in other ways. There are some of us who have probably lost loved ones years ago, and we've never really allowed ourselves to grieve, and as a result, 
it's still banging around in the back of our heads. I remember when my dad died. I hadn't seen him in years. He was living in a van and and he was schizophrenic and hadn't seen him. I had thought about looking. I had tried looking for him and couldn't find him. And then he, we got the call that he had died of pneumonia in his van up in Ventura. Well, I had to go get all his junk and get rid of it. I had to make arrangements for him to, you know, to get a burial plot up there in Ventura. I'm going through all that stuff. I wasn't really grieving. I didn't really have a chance to do that. It's like, and I remember Anne got Pastor Chuck to come and tell me that my dad had died. And I was like, oh boy, okay, I got work to do. I have stuff to do. I need to get out there. He had, my dad had got into wrecks with people and never paid him. I had to take care of all that that was pending and all, you know, but it was like I buried him just by myself. I had it done and everybody else was processing in their own ways. But, you know, one day I was heading, I hadn't been by his grave, but one time I was going to a football game, Calvary football game up north, and I'm going right through Ventura. And I go, I'm going to just go see my dad's grave. And so I went and the place was closed. And I just felt like I needed to do it. It was raining, dark, lightning, really spooky. And so I climb over the fence and I walk through the cemetery and I go to where I was. And I just, I sat there at his grave and I just cried and cried and cried. And it was like, then I went to the football game. I, I don't remember if we won or lost, but something had happened. I had I had gone through a process. It was good for me. I've since been back there a few times. It's not the same kind of an experience. It's, I can remember the good things about my dad, even though there were a ton of bad things about my dad. He was very abusive. He was really nuts. He just, you know, did so much destruction, and yet there were things I could remember that were positive. But the thing is, my dealing with that grief wasn't for him. He's with the Lord. It was for me to go through that process. And if David had to go through it for the guy that was trying to kill him, but who was also his ex-father-in-law and his, and his king, then it tells us that we need to look for in what ways, who do we need to really grieve? How do we need to mourn? A couple other things, because um, I didn't tell that story for a service, so now we're getting late and we have communion, but it's okay. Um, the second thing I see in this is this statement three different times, how the mighty have fallen. The life of Saul, he started out a great guy. The more power he got, the more destruction he accomplished, and he ends up crashing and burning. It's a basic principle that we are not, Jesus made this really clear, we are not designed to handle power and influence. We just aren't. And the more power we get, the more you can start setting your timer toward at some point, the mighty are going to fall. Power is going to, as Lord Acton said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's a part of life. David is ironically acknowledging this in his song. It was supposed to be a lesson, but David experienced the same thing in his own life. He was now going to be king. And he was going to ascend to the throne. And he was going to virtually destroy the Philistines. And he was going to accomplish so much that Israel would have, a, have the larger landmass than they had ever had. And he would set them up toward the, the prosperity that would be there when his son Solomon took over. 
And yet David, in the end, there were times when this guy who wrote so many psalms, this guy who was a man after God's heart, his own family turned on him. His son chased him out of the throne and just pushed him away and disgraced him completely. And in the end, it's like, wow, you can say it again. What destroyed you? Ultimately, your power destroyed you. And over and over again in life, whatever power you have has the potential to bring you down. How the mighty have fallen. There's something within us that wants to be mighty. It's why Jesus taught his disciples, it's not that way with you. Just be satisfied to be a servant of all. Look at me. You follow me. I'm dying intentionally. I am allowing people to humiliate me. I'm, I could make myself huge. I've chosen not to do it because that hunger for power is something that leads to destruction. Pride comes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And so I can't help but notice David using that phrase three times in this song, the mighty have fallen. And I wonder years later if he wouldn't hear that song and go, wow, what goes around comes around. It's amazing. The other thing that I just want to point out is that if I were telling the life story of Saul, I, I basically have him 95% jerk. You know, I would go, he's a guy that David could have killed him a couple times and he wouldn't because he's the anointed of God. He's going against God. He's disgusting. He, in every way, he destroyed his family. He pulls his daughter, Michelle, away from her husband, David. He comes between David and Jonathan, makes makes Jonathan choose between him and his best friends, and he chose you. And I'd look at the life of Saul and say, this guy is nothing but a disgrace. But look how David describes him, beloved and pleasant. And they were together in the end. He did so much. He was the anointed of God. Let me tell you something about life. And the older I get, the more I understand this. You watch people long enough, they're going to do something stupid, really stupid. And often, they will suffer the consequences. So if you have some hero, be careful. Because people aren't meant to deal with that kind of image. And so expect them to fall. Now, we see over and over now because of the internet, when some pastor messes up in some way, boom, it's all over Twitter. It's all over the internet. There are people who, you know, like to snoop out these kinds of cases and expose them. And you know what? I appreciate those people, frankly. I, I think that when somebody's messing up, they should be exposed. However, at the same time, I don't think anyone should be canceled. I think when you do bad things and you're a leader, God holds you responsible and you need to face the music. And someday you may die on your mountain. Someday you may find out that nobody wants to listen to you anymore because they found out what a con man you are. They found out what a dirtbag you were. And that is what it is, and it's okay. And if, if people are leading others in the name of Jesus and they're corrupt, they need to be exposed. However, does that mean that you can't look back on their life and honor what God did through them. Because you, I have friends who came to the Lord 
under a pastor who ended up being totally disgraced for horrible things. In fact, I know in this particular, with this particular pastor, he was a friend of mine, and thousands and thousands of people came to Jesus through his ministry. And then he dishonored himself and the ministry and ended up bombing out. And like now, people don't even want to talk about him. They act like his teachings now don't matter. You have somebody like um, Ravi Zacharias, the, the great apologist. I mean, Ravi wrote some of the best books, Christian books, and he, his arguments for, to defend Jesus were amazing. The guy was brilliant. But in the end, as he came toward the end of his life, they found out he owned some massage parlors, he had some other stuff going on, and we would go, you know what, I'm kind of glad we know that because nobody should soft soap anything that somebody does. And the truth is, yeah, he ends up being disgraced and his organization now is just kind of flailing. Do, does that bother me? No, not at all. But does that mean that what God did through him now is canceled? No, of course not. I'm more amazed than ever that like when I read his book on Buddhism. It was like one of the most brilliant, you know, uh, it, it was really a parable of Jesus and Buddha and a guy riding in a boat and having a conversation. It's just as brilliant as it ever was. Of course, he was an idiot to be living the way he did. Probably being set up on such a pedestal makes people think that they need to, you know, gratify their flesh in some way. You do that, you're going down, okay? And I, and I would say that even the people who have exposed it, good for you. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that God didn't use that guy. That doesn't mean, I mean, almost everyone I know who God used in my life has in one way or another shown themselves to be frighteningly mortal. So what do I do? Do I look at someone and cancel them and act like, God never used them? Or do I go, boy, that's what power does. But in the end, I'm not going to deny that God did amazing things. Well, the only way we can do that is by looking at people's lives through the eyes of grace. So I don't remember my dad as a guy who kicked me in the head and knocked me unconscious with his steel-toed boots. Well, I guess I do remember it because I just told you about it. But (laughs) at the same time, I look at his Bible, things he wrote in it, underlined, things that I know he taught me when I was a kid, and, and the, the heart that he had. Look, somebody's mentally ill, and we're all mentally ill, but some people more than others, almost everyone thinks they're doing the right thing when they do it. But for me, it's like, would I even be a Christian today were it not for my weird godly upbringing I don't know. I mean, God's, I'm not a Calvinist, so I'm not going to say, well, he's sovereign, I was elect, and it was just going to automatically happen. But at the same time, can I look back and go, what I want to see now, now that it's all over, I'm really not interested in someone's weaknesses and failures. While they're alive, I think they should be exposed. But when they're dead, that's when grace kicks in. Because that's when, if someone has accepted Jesus Christ, that's when the slate is wiped clean, and we stand in the righteousness of Christ. Learn from their mistakes. The Bible's good about that. It always tells you, 
you know, when, when the heroes did bad things. It doesn't, doesn't soft pedal it at all. They're all exposed. David ended up being exposed by, you know, a man of God who confronted him for just some of his sin. David owned up to it. That's what makes him special. But in the end, Jesus' recollection of David, <laughs> I am of the root and offspring of David. That's amazing. And I pray for me and for you, for all of us, that as we go through the process of grieving, that we would end up at grace, that we would end up as going, you know, when it's all said and done, it was grace. That's what mattered. That's what lasts. The good that is there. In my life, when you get old and you're around Christians for decade after decade, you're going to be let down by pretty much all of them. Okay? But I would, I would walk away if I was going to let that turn me away from the grace of God. So mourning the whole process, it's important. The lesson, the mighty fall, don't forget that. But in the end, learn to look back in grace. I think that's something, if you can't do that, then a person who's dead, who's hurt you, whether it's a family member or a pastor or whoever, they still control you. Until you come to the point of grace, you can never be free to appreciate what God did through flawed people. And flawed people are the only kinds of people he has to work with. So that's what I see. That's what I take away from this first chapter. And we will continue to see some of these lessons come forward. But I pray that for you, maybe there's someone you've never really mourned. Or maybe you've mourned and been through this process and you thought there was something wrong with you. Now, it's okay. It's the man after God's heart went through this mourning process, whether you have a loved one who's in the process of dying, which, by the way, all your loved ones are, or whether you've seen someone leave, and now you're trying to come to terms with it. This chapter is a good one to check out and to read because we're reminded it's, it, nothing lasts forever until we get to be with the Lord. That's what makes heaven so special. In the meantime, yeah, admit when you feel lost. Admit when your heart's broken. Allow yourself to weep. Give yourself permission to do that so that then you can move on into chapter two and go, okay, let's get at it. Many of us are carrying the burdens of never mourning. And that hurts us because it lets people still be in our head where we should have been able to release them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this chapter of your word and this truth. It's something that we need because we're experiencing loss all around us. And every one of us is dying, ultimately. So help us to learn from David the way that he was honestly processing his grief, the way that he took the big lesson that power corrupts, and the way that finally he understood that all that matters before today is grace. Give us the grace to look back on anyone who's been a valuable part of our lives or anyone who's been a source of our pain and say, I just want to remember the good, 
I just want to walk in grace. I don't want to carry the baggage of resentment. Thanks, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well.